Lyme disease is a major health problem that I'm sure many of you see in your practice. It can be frustrating because patients come in and you don't necessarily know they've been exposed. They might not even know they've been exposed, but it can be a big issue if it's not recognized. Hi, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me today is Dr. Kathy Spreen. Dr. Spreen is the author of a book, The Compendium of Tick-Borne Disease, A Thousand Perils, and this book is actually just out. It's meant to address not just Lyme disease, but other tick-borne illnesses, but I do want to focus a little bit, if I could, Dr. Spreen, on Lyme disease, and before we even start, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad for this opportunity. Tell me a little bit about Lyme disease. I mean, recently there have been some reports that it's it's even more common than than people had thought. Well, Lyme disease is a multi-system disease. It's a great mimicker. Uh, It can present as any number of other conditions. Most people just think they have a bad flu uh, when they initially get it, but it can uh, develop in a significant subpopulation of patients into a very debilitating condition. It can uh, start out, as I said, as a flu-like syndrome. Sometimes, but not always, it will have uh, what is called an erythema migrans rash. Now, many times people think that you have to have a rash in order to have a diagnosis of Lyme disease, but that's not the case. Probably only about 50% of the patients ever have any kind of rash. Most often that rash is uh, a solid maroon oval, and very rarely is it a target or bullseye lesion that we hear so much about. Uh, If you do get that kind of target lesion, you almost certainly have Lyme disease or another Borrelia But if you don't have the rash, that doesn't exclude the possibility of Lyme disease. Many patients get pain. They get migrating joint pain. They get numbness, tingling, uh, irritability. And oftentimes, there's a lot of neuropsychiatric symptoms associated with Lyme disease. So in a number of patients, probably as many as 30 to 40%, they go on to have long-lasting or persistent symptoms with Lyme. And these, as I said, can be very debilitating in those patients. You know, when you talk about it, I mean, a lot of people have heard the term Lyme disease back in medical school. I remember when we were first hearing about cases and talking about it, it seemed all so exciting that it was Lyme, Connecticut, and then you realized there were certain pockets on the East Coast. Where do we see it now? How far spread is it in the United States and in the world? Well, the CDC uh, came out uh, on the 19th saying that uh, there were actually probably about 300,000 new cases reported uh, each year. In the past, they had only acknowledged about 30,000 a year. So this is uh, much more prevalent than we had initially suspected or they had initially suspected because those of us in the Lyme community knew that it was much more widespread. In the United States, we have endemic areas, uh, primarily New England, uh, from Maine uh, down through the mid-Atlantic states. Pennsylvania uh, has the uh, highest number of new cases, whereas Delaware has the highest incidence. Maryland, very common. There are pockets in central Pennsylvania around the Great Lakes, uh, Lake Erie, 
Michigan, large pockets of uh, disease, the Pacific Northwest, California, and now uh, states like Florida uh, becoming much more common. Is it always a deer tick, I mean, associated with deers? Do you have other uh, animals that can spread it as well? Well, it's most often a deer tick, but we know also that the Lone Star tick spreads disease, uh, not just Lyme disease, but other diseases. Some of those have been, uh, some viruses have been associated with the deer tick, have just been identified within the last several months. Even the dog tick is uh, suspected, although we don't have conclusive evidence on that at this point. But many kinds of ticks can spread and do spread disease. You mentioned the term about it masquerading. Tell me a few of the symptoms, that the obvious ones, and then the ones that maybe some of the clinicians listening might not think about in, in the first case. There are a number of body systems that Lyme can affect, and one of them is uh, the neuropsychiatric system. There are many things, anxiety, depression, sleep problems. There are autism-like syndromes. Often Lyme is misdiagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome or multiple sclerosis. There are many things called brain fog that patients get where they have trouble thinking clearly, have trouble focusing, have trouble making decisions. And that can extend for quite a while. A number of patients have associated endocrine problems. Some have GERD is is a common uh, thing in uh, Lyme patients. There can be interstitial cystitis. That's one of the difficulties in terms of diagnosing Lyme, and that's why so many of us miss these diagnoses so often. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. I'm speaking with Dr. Kathy Spreen, author of Compendium of Tick-Borne Disease, A Thousand Perils. And with that, we're talking about the various symptoms many people don't think about. I recently did a story talking about the psychiatric, psychological issues on Lyme disease. And actually, that's how we were connected again for this particular program. And when you talk about that, A lot of people aren't aware of that. They don't realize that that can occur as well, the the fog that you're talking about or the depression, the anxiety, and perhaps even um, long-term issues. If someone is wondering if uh, their patient may have psychological symptoms related to Lyme, as far as testing is concerned, is it too late to test after a certain point? Can you continue to test? How do we find out if there has been an exposure to the best of our abilities? Well, One of the biggest problems and controversies around Lyme disease is around testing. How do we uh, test for this condition? Well, the CDC and NIH and, and a number of other organizations have declared that Lyme must be diagnosed clinically. That means you have to look at the history, the physical, the review of systems, and see if this patient in this circumstance could possibly have Lyme disease. One of the big problems is that people do lab testing. They look for uh, antibodies against uh, specific antigens, and when it comes back negative, they say that the patient doesn't have Lyme disease. Well, we know that those tests lack specificity, and while 
a positive is almost always a positive. In fact, in my experience, I don't know anybody that had a false positive test. But a negative test does not exclude the diagnosis of Lyme disease. There are so many reasons why these tests come back negative in a patient that actually has the disease that it's we're lucky uh, if we're catching 30% of the actual cases. So in that regard, it's very hard to tell a patient, you do not have Lyme disease based on a negative lab test. And I would say, although in medicine it's very hard to, you know, you should never say never, but in this case I would say never exclude a diagnosis of Lyme based on a negative lab test alone. We're talking with Dr. Kathy Spreen. How did you get interested in this particular topic? I know background, a lot of it is occupational health, and you're a writer, but what was it that triggered the interest, the number of patients you had seen over the years with tick-borne problems? Or this is quite a book, so what got you excited about researching it to such an extent? Well, I had Lyme disease, and I blame it uh, largely uh, on the need that I had for a knee replacement. Uh, my husband had Lyme disease, but the uh, issue that really uh, spurred me to write this book was the fact that my son got so sick a few years ago uh, from Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses that I really did not believe he was going to survive. And the problem there was that none of the physicians in the area, including me, had any idea of what was going on with him. So what I did was write the book that I wish I had at the time when he first got sick because we had no idea what was going on. My husband, when my son was really doing poorly, he was unconscious and had a 106-degree fever, my husband got a hold of uh, a group called the Lyme Disease Association of Southeastern Pennsylvania, and they directed us to physicians that knew about Lyme and other co-infections that can occur. And my son did get, eventually, the treatment that he needed, but he had to be treated uh, essentially for three years before he improved well enough to uh, to be feeling better most of the time. He really had a battle with this and, and had to deal with it for quite some time, and you as a family as well. Right, uh, and that's one of the things that's uh, important to, to keep in mind and and that I focus on in the book, that Lyme disease affects the whole family. Caretakers are often having to spend uh, 24 hours a day taking care of these patients. Many mothers are reported to have had to quit work in order to uh, take care of their children who are sick with Lyme and also can be uh, very financially devastating to a family uh, to treat this uh, over years. So if someone comes into your office and you're thinking Lyme, what are the steps that you take uh, on, on a typical patient uh, where you're suspecting it and you're, you're thinking about treating it? What would you do? Well, you have to be hyper aware because you're not going to find something that you're not looking for. So if Lyme and these other co-infections are not part of your repertoire, you're just not going to, to hit them. Unfortunately, most patients with confirmed Lyme disease don't even remember a tick bite. So you're in uh, a situation where the patient comes in and just is feeling sick 
and maybe giving you uh, symptoms like they have uh, flu, they have uh, joint pain, they're irritable, they're uh, so fatigued they can barely walk across the room, uh, and you're trying to fit this into uh, your differential diagnosis, and unless Lyme or tick-borne disease are high on your differential diagnosis list, uh, you're going to miss it. So that's a big concern. Physicians have to be aware that this needs to be high on their list, especially if they're in those endemic areas where we're, these 300,000 cases are uh, obviously uh, uh, out there, and uh, we may have missed a lot of them. And you also, while we're talking about it, talk about a number of the other tick-borne diseases. We don't have a lot of time left in the program, mm-hmm. but babesiosis and others. Tell me about the ones we should be most concerned about. Obviously, there's a bunch of them if you read the book, mm-hmm. but which ones are the most prevalent that you're concerned about? Well, I'm concerned about uh, babesiosis here in uh, on the East Coast. Uh, we do know that uh, there was a baby uh, born uh, with babesia, uh, not that long ago, and uh, uh, those kids can be very, very sick. And if the physicians aren't aware of what might need to be done, uh, the outcome could be uh, very poor. Uh, Babesia presents like a uh, a malaria. There'll be uh, very high fevers, drenching sweats, uh, rigors, uh, and it can go on to have respiratory uh, problems or problems with uh, anemia. It's uh, sometimes called uh, Nantucket fever or North American malaria. Uh, That's an important one. There are others, uh, things like uh, Bartonella, which um, we traditionally think of as the um, pathogen that causes cat scratch fever. But there are Bartonella-like organisms that uh, can be transmitted by tick. There are certain mycoplasmas that, that can be transmitted, Ehrlichia, anaplasma. There are a number of them that uh, I go through uh, in the book. Some are very scary, like Powassan uh, encephalitis, which we know can be transmitted in probably in less than 15 minutes and uh, can be fatal. So um, we just have to become more aware than we ever have been in the past and uh, put these diseases higher on our list or we're going to miss them. Well, Dr. Spreen, I appreciate your taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. It's important to get the word out. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash today to download the podcast and learn more on this series. Thank you very much for listening.